Those are all really good reminders, aren't they? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I'll continue to praise the Lord. Somebody said to me this morning, have you ever seen a year where there's been so many storms, so many hailstorms, so much rain? And I don't know. Um, I'm sure there has been a year like this before. But, you know, it begs the question, so what do you do? What do you do when a storm comes? What do you do when storms just continue coming week after week after week? Well, you live the next day. You trust in the Lord. You take that next step. The Lord, um, all things are possible. He can do anything. I read this week that if you can't find a lawyer who knows the law, find a lawyer who knows the judge. (laughs) Now, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, Last week in Job chapter 31, um, Job finally concludes all of his words. He, He rested his case last week. In fact, he said words similar to that. Um, This is my case and I'm done. And at the end of his defense, there was silence. Nobody said anything. They just kind of sat there uh, awkwardly looking at each other. And and it's like they were waiting and stepping back for when the lightning was going to strike Job for what he just finished saying. That was the attitude of his three friends. Uh, And what was God going to do? Would, was he going to judge Job immediately for the words that he had just said? Because, you know, he complained quite a bit in, in his uh, monologue there. Uh, but God didn't do that. Uh, would he accept Job's challenge and appear to him and give him another opportunity to defend himself? That is an option that God could have chosen, but he didn't do that. Or perhaps God would speak directly from heaven and answer his questions directly. Um, God, or or Job, challenged God because he was sure that God would vindicate him. He was sure that he was right and his friends were wrong and and he was just waiting for that moment for God to to rush in and prove everybody else wrong. Man, when have we not done that? There's been times where it's just like we can't wait till that other person is proved wrong and we are proved right. And Job's friends, on the other hand, were confident that God would condemn him because he's just not listening to them. We know there's sin in your life, Job. That's why all of these bad things have happened to you. And for those of you who are just joining us today, we have seen multiple times at the beginning of the book of Job where God himself said, this this isn't happening. These things, this suffering isn't being placed upon Job because he has done something big. He is considered righteous in God's eyes. So it's not punishment. And yet there is silence. No one speaks. Job, his friends, and even God is still silent. And I can imagine that God's silence is deafening in that moment. It can be, can't it? We cry out to God and then there's nothing. He says, nothing. Now, he may be silent in order to communicate to Job's friends that they are wrong on so many levels, that he's not even going to entertain everything that they have said about Job and about God. And he hasn't replied to Job yet at this point because The God of the universe, though he does care and does hear everything we say, is not at our beck and call. God is not at our beck and call. God doesn't show up just because someone challenges him. 
God doesn't show up just because we ask. There's a famous place called Speaker's Corner. Um, I guess there's multiple places. It's more of a definition, but uh, it's an area where free, open-air public speaking, debate, and discussion are allowed. I would like to think that that's most everywhere in the United States, but maybe not. Um, the original and best known is in the northeast corner of Hyde Park in London, England. And there was one day, there was a man attacking Christianity, and he issued this challenge. This is what he said. If there is a God, I will give him five minutes to strike me dead. And then he looked at his watch, and he started keeping track. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and at the end of that five minutes, he smiled and he declared, my friends, this proves that there is no God. A Christian believer in the crowd yelled out, do you think you can exhaust the patience of Almighty God in just five minutes? You see, coming at God demanding things isn't going to work. God is not in the business of doing party tricks. And Jesus is not in the business of doing party tricks. Mark chapter 1, it'll be up here, or Mark chapter 8, verses 7 through 12. Um, I'm not going to read all of those, but this is at the end of the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus has just taken very little food. He's miraculously multiplied it, and they fed everyone. Um, it says that they, uh, they were all well fed and about 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, verse 10, he got into the boat with his disciples and he went to the, to, to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. Jesus, give us a sign from heaven to prove that you are who you say you are. And Jesus sighs deeply and says, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. The Pharisees knew of Jesus' miracles. The Pharisees have observed. They have heard. They have talked to people. Jesus turned water into wine. He's healed people. He's, I don't know if he's walked on water at this point yet, but over and over and over again, Jesus shows that he has all the power, that he is who he says he is, yet they ask for a sign. Uh, turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 16. You may already be in Job. We'll get there. Uh, but Matthew chapter 16. And while you're turning, has anyone ever heard the saying, red at night is a sailor's delight? My dad used to say farmer's delight. That's the only way that I understood it. Uh, red in the morning, farmers take warning, right? Um, as I was researching uh, for this message this week, I read that that saying has been around for thousands of years and that, the, that one of its first recorded uses and writings is in Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Uh, Matthew is describing the same interaction that Mark just described, but he adds some different details. Matthew 16, 1 through 4. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him how to show, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. 
A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and he went away. Now, turn back four chapters to chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12. And uh, Matthew records another instance where this very similar same kind of interaction occurred between Jesus and the Pharisees and other teachers of the law. I mean, I wonder, I bet this happened many times. How many times as a child did, did somebody tell you that they did something or that they, they knew something or they promised you something and you basically said, prove it? I don't trust you just to tell me that. You need to show me in some way, shape, or form. Jesus is like, he's already, really, he's already shown many ways, but, but they're asking for a sign. Well, what sign do you want? I, I don't know, verse 38 of chapter 12. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. I mean, wow, right? I, I looked that up. It, it was 800 years before Jesus, this instance of Jonah and, and the big fish happened. And I went back and revisited a sermon series that we did years and years and years ago on the book of Jonah. And I'm like, man, wouldn't it be fun to teach that again? So sometime this fall, maybe, we're going to do a series again in the book of Jonah because, because what a... Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days. I mean, even, even as God is taking a prophet that he has called and sending him to a people group that he wants to save, he is showing us time and time again in the Old Testament pointing forward. And now as we look back to this Messiah, this Savior that's going to come, and, and in, for the Ninevites, it was in the form of Jonah who spent three days and three nights in the belly of something pretty dark. And who do we, we have Jesus who spent three days in some place very dark for us. Now, there's a whole different reason why Jonah spent the three days in there. We know that. Um, but what an amazing picture of what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. It's the only way that we can be saved. Because Jesus gave his life for us. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't have to prove himself because of the already overwhelming evidence that bears witness to the power and presence of God. But having said all of that, okay, point number two this morning is even though God is not at our beck and call, God does want us to call on him. He does. Calling out to God, and, and calling out to God is a multifaceted thing. Um, to call on the name of the Lord can be to invoke his name in audible and social prayer and, and praise. Um, I love it when I hear people who, who I don't necessarily know and I wonder what their theology is. I hear them pray and they, and they end their prayer in the name of Jesus. Because I know they have a concept of the importance of, that that prayer is in the name of Jesus 
Christ. If, if they just say amen or they just end, I, you know, I mean, I, I just wonder. Why didn't they pray that in Jesus' name? Do they not believe that Jesus is God? Do they? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. But um, to call on the name of the Lord is to approach him in thanksgiving, worship, petition. It's to proclaim the name of God. To call on the name of the Lord can be to pray in a more public and solemn manner. Those, those who are children of God will naturally call on the name of the Lord. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you will naturally, more often than not, cry out to, to Jesus. It is a powerful name. Calling on the name of the Lord is, is basic for salvation. And, and God promises to save those who, in faith, Call upon his name. Romans says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, everyone who invokes the name of God for mercy and salvation by or in the name of Jesus shall be saved. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. Somebody asked me what my favorite passage is. And, and, and this is it. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And that name is Jesus. Jesus. Calling on the name of the Lord is a lifelong pursuit. God even commands us to call on him in times of trouble. The one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty, he says in Psalm 91.1. Um, and, and, and that psalm has God's promise of blessing because in verses 14 and 15 of Psalm 91, it says, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He calls out to me. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble and I will deliver him and I will honor him. And we know that if you know anything about Job, you know that's coming. You know that's where this is gonna end up. And the same is true for every one of our lives. We may be in the midst of suffering and we just don't get it because we are suffering and how can God even be here? But he is. He was there for David. He was there for Saul. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 commands us to humble ourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time in due time, in God's time, which is never my time. Cast all your anxiety on him because why? Because he cares for you. There is no doubt, though we are not to presume God responding the way we want, he wants us to call on him. He wants you to cry out to him. Um, may calling, calling on the name of the Lord be a part of our everyday Lives. And then, and then someone breaks the silence. They've been sitting in silence, I don't know for how long. Uh, but this Elihu must have been listening to the conversation um, from the beginning. And, and he has been biting his tongue all along, he says. He's bursting at the seams to have his opportunity to say his piece. Ever been in a conversation like that? You're just sitting there and you're sitting there and they keep saying things and you're like, that's not right, that's not right. What about this? And, and you just wait and you wait and you wait and finally you get an opportunity to get a word in edgewise and you jump at the chance. That's what Elihu did. For six chapters 
a lot. He says he's going to be brief, but he's not. Um, Elihu, it starts out, turn to, to Job chapter t- uh, 32, if you have not already. Elihu, son of Barakel, the, the Busite or Busite of the family of Ram. Verse 2, he became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused and off he goes. Elihu first defends the reasons he is speaking and what he is speaking about. Chapter 32 is all about Elihu. He implores them to listen to him even though he is younger. Uh, He says that he was respectful and waited for the elder men to speak, but now it's his turn. And it is good, I must add, to allow those who are older to speak, to be respectful of them. But age, older age, as we have seen several times in this book, does not necessarily equate maturity or wisdom. Um, And one of the reasons that he makes this claim is is the fact that Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz have not succeeded in giving Job adequate answers to the suffering that he is in. In fact, he says in verse 12 of chapter 32, but not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. So really, I mean, it's like it's become this winning and losing thing in, this, in conversation with Job. And, and really, it should never be about that. Um, I just, just a quick point here uh, for everybody younger that's in the room. All but one of us in this room have somebody in this room older than us. Now, I don't know who that person is. Honestly, I don't. But every one of us has somebody that's older than us, except for one person in this room. Don't let people look down on you because of your youth. Um, you may think you're not youthful, but to, every, but to other people, there are people that you are youthful to. Um, And there are a lot of reasons to give people to look down on us, aren't there? (laughs) I mean, a lot. Uh, Benedict Spinoza, who was a philosopher, said, A vain man may become proud and imagine himself pleasing to all when he is in reality a universal nuisance. Uh, You know, my dad always used to say, and you've probably heard it before, You know, it's better to be thought a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt. That happens. Uh, Vanity, pride, arrogance, self-centeredness are just a few ways that people, to, to get people to look down on you. Elihu has been bursting at the seams to speak his piece. Like, like bottled up wine, he says, like new wineskins that are about ready to burst. Verse 20, I must speak to find relief. I must open my lips and reply. I know a lot of people on Facebook that that must be what they're feeling. Because they just can't resist typing things. It it is hard to, to see people in conversation about something and just let them do their thing when you think that you have the actual wisdom concerning whatever it is that they're talking about. 
And you can't seem to get an, a, a word in edgewise. Don't let people look down. Don't give people a reason to look down on you just because you're younger than they are. 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Be a man or woman of integrity. Be honest. Um, speak the truth. Don't connive. Don't, um, don't blow up in anger. Then chapter 33 starts, and Elihu says that what is about to come out of my mouth is going to clear up everything for everyone. He's super confident that what he has to say, um, now, he almost alludes to the fact that what he is about to say was given to him by God, but, but I don't think that's correct. I don't think that's what happened, and I'm not sure that he quite actually says that. And just like the other three friends, there are things that Elihu is right about. Um, in chapter 33, Elihu lay, lays out some truth describing our incredible, gracious God, our protector and our savior. God is so good to us. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. I mean, we're imperfect. Uh, Elihu recognizes him, his perfection is as well, and he states that Job claimed to be sinless, which actually isn't true. Job did not claim to be sinless. Job's friends claimed that Job claimed to be sinless. Job only claimed to be blameless, not sinless. There is a difference. And as Elihu begins what turns out to be a monologue, even though he told Job to answer him, you know, basically, come on, join the conversation. He joins the men grasping for reasons. And interestingly, Elihu mentions three methods that God uses to protect people from the pit. Uh, Job 33, verse 14. For God does speak now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. And that can be true, right? God can be trying to speak to us and we're just not hearing it because we're not paying attention. We're focused on other things. We're wrapped up in ourselves. We can fail to perceive God's words to us. His guidance and assurance and even correction. Elihu goes on to say that God protects us through dreams and visions. Look at verse 15. He says, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. God can, through dreams and visions, remind people that they need to stay faithful to him that, that, and, and warn them about things that are coming. Now, I believe that God speaks most clearly and most often to us today through his word, the Bible. There's no doubt what it says. It's in black and white. Sometimes there's discussions about interpretation. If there's gray areas, we go to black and white areas to help us uh, recognize what those gray areas are telling us. And honestly, sometimes we just have to go, God, you're just too great. I can't understand you. It's just a mystery. 
And, and when we talk about dreams and visions, it, it, it's important to be sure that those dreams and those visions line up with what God's word says. Because if it's different, um, then that wasn't God speaking to you in that dream. It was, it was a bad taco from Taco Bell or, or, or something else. It, it wasn't God speaking to you. Now, can he speak to you in a dream? Absolutely. He can do whatever he wants. But we need to be certain that if we're heeding a warning or, we're, or, or we're, we're hearing something from him in a dream, that it was actually him that spoke to us. A second way that God protects us is through suffering. Is through suffering. Um, yes, God speaks to us and protects us through suffering. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Verse 19, Elihu says, Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones, so that their body finds food repulsive and their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing and their bones once hidden now stick out. They draw near to the pit and their life to the messengers of death. Elihu says that this man is suffering because God wants to get his attention and to keep him from breaking his laws. Now, is his illustration a narrative of Job's suffering? Maybe that's, maybe that's where he's drawing his information and he's trying to make a comparison there. But suffering can be a way for God to protect us from sin. However, I think it is a mistake to say that God causes all suffering. Because sometimes we do a good job of that ourselves. Um, careless driving can lead to an accident which can cause suffering in your life or someone else's. Um, not eating right or engaging in habits that abuse our bodies definitely causes self-inflicted suffering. Sin, too, causes suffering. When we defy God's commands, there will always be consequences of some kind. But we must also say that not all suffering is punishment for sin because it's not in Job's case. God uses suffering and can use suffering to protect us from sin. This is what Paul was talking about to the Corinthians in his second letter. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Paul says, therefore, in order to keep me from being, becoming conceited, which is sin. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. But he said to me, but Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Man, have you ever had that experience where you had something happen in your life and you had, it was a difficult situation and you had absolutely no idea how to respond? 
I mean, you're, you're weak-kneed, you're shaken, you, you, you don't have the words to say, and you stop and you pray and you say, God, I need you right now. I don't know what to do. And, and then later, you look back on that situation and maybe it was an interaction with somebody. Maybe you were with somebody at the hospital and their loved one died or, or something similar to that and you just didn't know what to say. And instead of saying something, you know, cliche or in some cases dumb, you, you instead ask God to help you. And later, that person comes to you and says, man, I am so glad that you were there that day. What you did and what you said just spoke to me in, in ways that I just can't describe to you. In your weakness, because you didn't know what to say or you didn't know what to do and instead you relied on the Holy Spirit, you relied on God to help you in that situation, it becomes a very powerful moment for that other person. We, we need to, to do that. It, it, and we need to recognize, you need to recognize that when you are weak, that's, that's where God wants you. Just about every meme on the planet is about being strong and standing up for yourself and, and being able, you know what? No, it's wrong. Our strength comes from our weakness because when we are weak, then we are not relying on ourselves. We're relying on our Savior. The greatest missionary to ever live on the planet was weak. <laughs> and he celebrated that because he says, that's when Christ's power rests on me. God speaks through and protects us in, in dreams and visions and suffering. A third way that God speaks to us and protects us is through the ministry of the mediating angel. Look at verse 23 and following in Job. Yet if there is an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand sent to tell them how to be upright, and he is gracious to that person and says to God, spare them from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him. They will see God's face and shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being. And they will go to others and say, I have sinned, I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit. And I shall live to enjoy the light of life. God does all these things to a person twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit that the light of life may shine on them. Sounds like salvation, doesn't it? Psalm 49, 7 through 9 says, No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and see and not see decay. The psalmist is talking about a human being interceding on another human being's behalf. That's not what Elihu is talking about here. Because Elihu says, um, I, would, I would even say that not even an angel, little a, can save us. 
That is only the angel, big A, the angel of the Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. Who can possibly be the ransom for Job? Who can possibly be the ransom for Job's friends? Who can possibly be the, the, um, the ransom for Job's wife? We know what she said. Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Why? Who, who can be the ransom for Elihu? Who can be the ransom for us? We already saw Acts 4, 12. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Job is wishing for that. All through his, his talking, we've seen him cry out for somebody that could, that could stand with him before God, who could defend him in the court of the royal palace. Timothy, looking back, is describing what Jesus did. Jesus is our mediating angel. The angel of the Lord. Oh man, God is so gracious. More gracious than we truly know. And Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our referee before God. Jesus is our savior. Jesus paid the ransom. And I guarantee you that today, Job knows. Job knows now. Job knows. He knows his mediator and the one who he cried out to hear from and who defends him before the Father today. Let me ask you a question. Is the enemy trying to beat you down? You know, before we started this series, I said it's always dangerous to do a series like this because when we start to talk about and we start being in a place where we are tested to believe what we say and, and what we tell others that we believe on a Sunday morning, it can get difficult. And, and I, I don't know if it's because of the series, but there are people in this room who are going through some difficult things. For some of you, it's been a while. And you, you, know, you watch the little intro video, and it's like, really, again, this is like the ninth time we've seen that. Well, there's only like three or four left. So, um. But those storms that persist and persist and persist and persist, those things that you struggle with, um, is the enemy trying to beat you down? Is he trying to discourage you? Is he trying to drag you? If, if he can't drag you into the pit, he wants to drag you as close as he can. Maybe he is accusing you or trying to convince you of things that, that just aren't true. Maybe he's even using some of your friends and family to discourage you. Things like God has left you or he isn't real or why, why would God let this happen to you or make this happen to you? I thought you said he was loving. I can't even imagine a loving person thinking this or thinking that or wanting you to do this or wanting you to do that. Or, or is this happening to you because of sin in your life? What, what have you done wrong? It must be that you have somehow offended God and that is why he is doing this to you. 
So as we head, as we all head into this next week, I want to give you three things. Three things to do. Okay, it doesn't matter where any of us are in this little scenario that I just listed. Maybe, maybe, man, life's good. This applies there too. The first thing that I want you to do this week is to lay everything down at the feet of Jesus. Lay everything down at the feet of Jesus. Things that are happening in your life may be happening because God is trying to get your attention. There is something in your life that he wants to correct. There is a blind spot that you're just not seeing. Or maybe, maybe God just wants to realign you to his heart. Maybe he's trying to protect you from something that he sees coming in your future that you have no idea is on the horizon. And I want you to pray these two verses as you start the week. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of of everlasting. Basically, God, I don't know even myself as good as you do. If there are blind spots, if there are things in my life that I need to be, that I need to repent of, God, show me. If, if you put your place, yourself in a place where you are willing to listen to what he will say and you ask him, he will show you. He will show you. The second thing that we all need to remember and that I want you to do is, is this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What, what does that mean? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Basically, the righteousness that you and I have in our lives as a a Christ follower comes from Jesus. It comes from him. It doesn't come from me. I always have some little subtle, um, selfish uh, reason. I mean, I would like to think that, that I... I serve and I do things for other people just because I enjoy it and that's what God wants me to do. But, but oftentimes there's always this sort of this thought in my head, oh man, I was so good to do that. And you look around to see if anybody noticed. I mean, you kind of hope that they didn't, but at the same time, you're like... So even in doing good... That doesn't make me righteous. My righteousness comes from Jesus. Your righteousness comes from the fact that the blood of Jesus is covering you. And when God looks at you, he's looking right through that blood. Right through it. So when somebody comes to condemn you, which is one of the tools of the enemy, when when friends and family or enemies want to make you feel bad because you've done something wrong in your life, you need to point to the Jesus that's in you. And you need to say, there has already been a sin offering made on my behalf. Yes, I did that thing wrong. Yes, I need to repent of that. Yes, I don't want to do that again. But that forgiveness, that righteousness that I have doesn't come from me. It comes from Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is no condemnation. You can't condemn me for that. I need corrected, yes. I need disciplined, yes. But condemned, nope. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you are, you need to remember that. You need to remind the enemy of that. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, there's no way you could follow the law and be perfect in the law to do what the law required. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. There, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So re- I, want you to, I want you to repeat after me. Okay, repeat after me. If you're a Christ follower, repeat after me. Because of what Jesus has done for me, I am not condemned. I am forgiven. I am loved. Amen. And finally, the third thing, I am righteous because of Jesus. I know I just talked about that. Uh, Romans 8, 10, and 11. But if Christ is in you, Paul says, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you you. What good news. God is gracious. He loves you so much. He loves you so much. Rest all that is in your life on him. Put that at his feet. The good, the bad, the ugly. Surrender it all to him. And now because of his great love, Let's start and never stop. May we start and may we never stop singing of his love. If you're a Christ follower, you you will sing of his love forever. So let's start now as the worship team comes up to do that. Lord Jesus, thank you for paying the price for us. And, and, And Jesus, I pray that If there are those in this room or those who are hearing this today who have never surrendered their life to you, I pray that that you you would help them, you would lead them down that road very clearly. You say that if we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, the Messiah, God, that we will be saved. Father, that's that's more than just words. It's, It's a response to you drawing us unto yourself. And I I just bet there's somebody here today that you're drawing unto yourself and I pray that they would respond to you in faith. Yes, I believe this. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He was God. I I believe that he lived his life. And now in this moment, I I pray, God, that, that that, that you would enter into my life. Jesus, that you would. Walk through that door of my heart that I am now opening to you. That you would change me forever.
God, I want that righteousness. And, and help those who are in Christ. Help us to live a life where, where yes, we're not perfect. We're, we're, we're sinful. We need to repent. We need to get on our knees before you. And, and often. But even in that, your word says that we are not condemned if we are in Christ Jesus. Oh, what love the Father has for us. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.